This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, I am Pastor Kearns, and I am joined by my colleague, Pastor Bruss. And Pastor Bruss, we're going to be listening to a sermon today. And this is a continuation of... No. No? Okay. No. I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Okay. We listened to Randy Hand talk about how to get direct downloads, and then we listened to the guy last week, Alton, who comes up with cartoon images. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, but his whole thing is you got to take a risk in order for you to hear God speaking to you. And so I listened to a half a dozen sermons since we finished that podcast on hearing God's voice. And not only was I suicidal, but I also realized that they all are saying the same thing. And I just thought for you and I to come in here and have to uh, listen to it, have our listeners listen to it, it was was just just too much. So So the point is, this is prevalent in the evangelical world. Yes. You're going to find it all over the place. When you hear it, it's, it's pretty obvious. And when you hear it, just get away. That's exactly right. And something else that you will hear in the evangelical church is that of finding your purpose. It's been on the shelf for a while, but boy, it's something that that guys still go to and pull off the shelf. And, and this is this talk Rick, about Rick Warren stuff. Yeah, uh, or uh, yeah, it's kind of you know Rick Warren purpose, purpose driven, driven yeah. purpose mm-hmm. driven life. This really got the ball rolling, but it is still going downhill in the sense that it's still got steam. Yeah, that, it's so interesting. It feeds a it feeds a human need, doesn't it? Uh, the human need uh, for a purpose and. And I think, I mean, if, if I can guess where this is going, that the, that the talk about direct downloads from God on the one hand and this business about finding a purpose, and that's with scare quotes that I'm using right now, these two are related things that, in other words, we're sort of, uh, we human beings are sort of in this morass, this cloud we see through a glass darkly, and it's our job to kind of find out what what the Lord wants us to do. Yeah, you could say how the Lutherans are always talking about word and sacrament ministry. The evangelicals, they don't say it as much, but it's like direct downloads and purpose ministry. Right, right. And this would be a great way to keep people in the church, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, a, a false way to keep people in the church, but a good way, right? Because, you know, if you're meeting this real human need, this felt need anyway, it's not a human need, really. It's the, the old Adam's need. Then you're always going to have people coming back and lapping it up right out of your hand. Yeah, and you know, I was reminded of this of watching this show on Netflix and this young man who's away at college, he talks about how he came to this college, and what do you know? He found Jesus and how he wants to fulfill God's purpose. And I just thought, man, this is still being preached loud and clear. You do an Internet search uh, on some sermons, and sure enough, it always makes the list, finding God's purpose. You know, and Lutherans have a real easy, revealed answer for this. What is your purpose? Well, examine your station in life. Uh, figure out where God has placed you, and then just fulfill the Ten Commandments in service and love toward your neighbor. It's really easy. You are so right. And having come from the evangelical world into the Lutheran world and wanting to obtain the Lutheran mind, it is so easy. And we don't have to go out of God's Word to try to make something up, even though it sounds titillating and, uh, and sensational. It's so clear. The difficulty probably, though— 
right? I mean, we're saying this is how easy it is. I'm betting that the difficulty is precisely this, that it makes the flesh sit still in a sense. And, And this is what the difficulty is with the beautiful scriptural teaching of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, right? I don't have to do anything. And the simplicity of this whole business of vocation in the in the Lutheran in the scriptural uh, record uh, is is difficult for the very same reason. I don't want to believe that it's that easy. I get, I want to believe that this has to be a lot more difficult than the Word lets me know it is. And there's the difficulty: is remaining faithful to what God tells you to do in His revealed Word, the Scriptures in thick and thin. That's where the trial comes uh, into the life of a Christian. Well, let's get into this sermon, and what you're going to hear, as you could probably already maybe pick up, maybe smell even, you know, there's going to be a confusion of law and gospel. There's going to be verses that are, you've already come up with the word, and then it's a, a concordant. You're exegeting your concordance. You go to the concordance to look for the word, and then it's like, oh, there's the word I need, and then you look up the verse. And so then you, you know what word you're after. You're, you're searching for your word, and then, good. And this is another reason why a lectionary is so important. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You don't get and, to preach I, what you want to preach. And I have to say, I had to listen to yet, when it came to purpose, I had to listen to a number of other sermons And even, we're going to still hear it here, but it's not going to last as long as it does. It's this obligatory, we started a new series, I'm so excited about it, it's going to really revolutionize your world. Let's go ahead and say hello to our campuses in Milwaukee and Madison and Wisconsin. Let's give them a big hand. You did it, you did it so well. (laughs) You know, it's this... Cheerleading. It's this cheerleading. Now, because we're not going to be watching the video and only focusing on the audio, it just blows me away that this pastor talks to the camera the entire time. Really? His eyes never come off the camera. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Made for TV, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, I, and I've watched some earlier ones, and he's not doing that. But for whatever reason, this one does not take his eyes off. So where's he from? He's from Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah. Right. All right. So here we go. Good morning, Crossroads Fellowship. Listen, I'm so glad that you chose to worship with us today to be at any of our campuses or any of our venues. In fact, I just want to take a moment and welcome all of you who are watching here in the worship center, everybody who is over in the chapel. Man, we love the chapel service. We love so much what Hugh and the entire team is doing over there, how they're leading that venue for us. Everybody who is over in the great room as well. And listen, can we celebrate that also this morning we have people up in Apex who are also watching us. And Doug and his team have started a brand new work over in the Apex area in Cambridge Village. And so we're very, very grateful for all that's happening over there in Apex. And then, of course, I want us to all welcome a huge welcome and a very big good morning to everybody at the Wake Forest campus. I had the opportunity to be out the Wake Forest campus last Sunday for the 8.30 service, and I tell you what, I absolutely love, love, love seeing what all is happening, what God is doing, the way that Ryan and his team are leading the way at the Wake Forest campus. So thank you for being with us this morning, Wake Forest. We're proud of you guys. We're excited for all that God has for you. You know, last Sunday, we celebrated 30 years as a church. You know, I asked the question uh, kind of jokingly, but also in a serious way, uh, where were you 30 years ago? You know, who, who would have thought that you would be where you are right now 30 years ago? And for some of you, 
some of you, 30 years later, you're, you're feeling pretty good about where you are. There might be some of you that are wondering, hey, did I make the right choices? Uh, in fact, there's probably a lot of you watching who uh, weren't even born 30 years ago, and so you're just along for the ride. But 30-year anniversary to Crossroads Fellowship, it was so wonderful at both campuses to acknowledge and honor people. And uh, we just honor God above all of all that he's doing and moving here in our churches. And so this morning, we're starting a brand new sermon series. It's called Explore God. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be diving into a lot of questions that I'm sure many of you have asked before. And if you haven't asked these questions, then I'm sure you're going to run into people who are asking you these kind of questions. Questions about faith, questions about life, questions about God, about the scripture, questions about what's happening next. And so I really do think that just prior to our fall launch here at Crossroads Fellowship, this is a great sermon series to dive into. Okay, now we've finally gotten all of this over with. It it drives me crazy. It's every sermon. I mean, hardly any of them just begin with the biblical text. Right. They've got to do all of this. Welcoming. Welcoming and reminding the audience that you're actually standing in front of, that there's another audience out there somewhere in the ether watching us too. (laughs) And every pastor, when he starts a new series, is so excited about this series. He never he never comes up and goes, you know, I really like the last series so much better than this one. I mean, this <laughs> one's going to stink. I can already I can already feel it. But well, I would say but that he's, he's doing it to get him revved up. That's right. right? Yep. That's right. And we we have a 52-week series. Exactly. I was listening to the sort of uh, waterfront of topics that this series is supposed to cover and I'm I'm not sure what the series is at this point in time. Explore um, God. Well, oh, that's what it's the called. Title. It's, it's yeah. called Explore God. Okay. I Look, I mean, does God put himself out there for exploration? He puts, them, puts himself out there and reveals himself as the God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't get this. I don't understand this. Well... There's sermons on this website that go back for years and years. This is one of the things that's hard about trying to really isolate certain theological issues and uh, and critique them or agree with them or disagree with them. It's because they put everything in these series. I'm not going to listen to six sermons to see what they say about, well, Yesterday, I was watching a sermon. I wanted to, us to review because, and the reason I wanted to review him is because he gets right to the scriptures. Mm. And it was again about hearing God's voice. But it was the sixth sermon in a series. He preaches for 50 minutes. He's talking about 300 minutes of preaching on hearing God's voice. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to do it is because he says amen at the end of every two or three sentences. <laughs> As a question, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Amen. 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 I want to start with a quick story. I shared this years and years and years ago, but as I was preparing for this message, this, this real-life scenario popped back into my mind. This was several years ago. In fact, we had just moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. We've only been here for maybe three, four years or so. And I remember one particular night, uh, Stacey and I are sound asleep. It's probably about 2, 3 in the morning, and all of a sudden, I'm awoken to what I feel is something on the end of our bed. And so I kind of half awake. My eyes are still kind of groggy. You can see the moonlight coming in through the window. And 
And I remember kind of sitting up in bed and looking down, and at the foot of our bed is at this time our very young daughter, Kennedy, who is just there. She's on her knees just staring at us. Now, you can imagine what you would feel at that moment. Half awake, two, three in the morning, your young daughter is just staring at you. Listen, I'm not a huge advocate of, of horror movies, but every horror movie that I've ever seen or heard, heard of in my entire life all came flooding back at that one moment. I'm going, oh my goodness, what is going on? What is happening? And then quickly I realized that she had sleptwalk into our room and sleptwalked into our bed, kneeling there, and in fact she was still asleep just staring at us. And so kind of gently after I realized what was going on, kind of gently I, I just kind of called her name and said, hey, Kennedy, Kennedy, and, and I saw her kind of do this, and, and she blinked her eyes and, and turned her head, and, and she was kind of looking around, and, and, and then she said this. She said, what, what, where, where am I? How did I get here? I said, Kennedy, you, you slept walk into our room. And she's looking around, and she's looking around, and what she says next is absolutely brilliant. She looks back at Stacy and I, she says, no, I have magic powers. I just magically appeared here. You know, that, that night when that happened, and I still laugh about that. In fact, I, I still, she's 14 now, and I still joke with her about those magic powers she had. But there really was a lesson that God put into my heart many, many years ago, 10, 10 years ago, that really surfaces from time to time in me. And that is simply this. How many people in life, including myself, have slept walk through a majority of their life? Or maybe right now are walking around with dreams that are completely asleep inside of them. Or they're walking around with all these hopes and ambitions of one day, of someday. This is pure self-help, isn't it? Couldn't you go to the, to the Barnes & Noble or whatever the big box bookstore is in your town, go to the self-help shelf and pull off a, a book like Unlocking Your Dreams or Realizing Your Dreams or... Uh, living the life you always wanted to live. Uh, what have this to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus slept in the boat. Doesn't that have to do? He sleep rode. <laughs> Jesus was sleep riding. He didn't sleepwalk. Well, you, you got to set up the problem. You got a cute story about yet again another child. And then what you do is you, you, you kind of push in the clutch, shift gears over to how, as you said earlier, now we're going to touch on that felt need. Right. Where you, man, you've got potential, but you, you, something's holding you back. There's something and, in your head. And God wants to release that in you. So here's uh, what I would say. You had mentioned earlier, when you know, just when we started, uh, that there are going to be law and gospel problems. Right. What, what I'm recognizing right now, the problem is that this is completely devoid of law and gospel. Well, give him a minute. Okay. He'll get there. But, I mean, the human problem, the human problem is not the problem that the Lord himself has identified as the human problem. Does this make sense? Yes, of course. Yeah. The that, human problem is sin. It's sin. It's sin and that you're going to die and that you're going to get eaten by worms and that, apart from Christ, you are going to uh, spend eternity in hell. This is the human problem, and God wants to rescue us from that. And the reason this is a false gospel is because it takes our eye and our attention off of the true problem and puts it on some other problem over here. It's a cancer patient where the cancer has metastasized and we're focused on what, hangnails? Hangnails or a sniffly nose. 
I, I would agree uh, that that's exactly what the issue is. And so, so you say it's a false gospel and, a, and, and it's a false law. There's nothing here. This is trotting out Jesus for an entirely what, secular purpose, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, that is interesting that you say this because knowing this church, you know, this is a middle, upper middle, high class church. It used to be in the day, yuppies. But it's aged. Right, right. And just massive amounts of income. Uh, and so when you said earlier, when we weren't recording about a TED Talk, that resonates. Because these are the exactly the kind of people who are listening to TED Talks. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah and think about this. If this is the, the audience to whom he is speaking. What opportunities have they not been afforded and seized upon in this life? Right. I mean, these these people sh- are showing up, uh, driving in from the McMansion in their ever greater sized Escalade, and they got their golf clothes on because because they're going to the golf club afterwards, and the kids have their swimming suits packed so they can swim in the in the golf club swimming pool. That's a great point. I mean, in the sense that these people have been afforded every advantage in life. Just to be clear, we're not saying that's a bad thing. No, of Wonderful. course not. If, it's just when the pastor gets up and tries to stir this up, it just underscores the fact that it is a false gospel. Correct. Doesn't it feed the breaches of the ninth and 10th commandments? Uh, you shall not covet. I mean, what more could you need? If you got the McMansion and two Escalades in the garage, in your three-car garage, where you also have the ATV. You, and you've got the kids that have gone to private school, and praise be to God, they've graduated, and they haven't gone to jail. Right. This is this is only stirring up the, the green, the, the little green monster in all of us. Uh, and it's not a little green monster. This is, uh, this is the old Adam fastened on the things of this world and not on God himself. You know how that happens, right? You sit there and you think, hey, one day I'm going to do this. And then one day turns to a week, And then a week turns to a month. Months turn into years and years into decades. And I just wonder how many people have truly found their purpose in life. That really just truly understand what it is about what God has done and is doing and why God has placed them on this earth. So just like my daughter who slept walking, one day just kind of woke up and and found herself in a place where she didn't recognize and and she didn't know where she was. And and what happens in life for a lot of people is that that's what happens is that you kind of go through life and then all of a sudden you just kind of wake up and you look around your surroundings and you're looking all around and you're wondering, how did I get here? What's my next step? There's a verse in the Bible in Romans chapter 13, and in Romans chapter 13, it says it this way, verse 11, this is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is, time is running out, and isn't that true? I mean, let's just put a pin in this for a moment. Isn't it true that as we look around, and and we know, church, listen, we know Jesus is coming back someday. We don't know what day that's going to be. We don't know if it's going to be today. We don't know if it's going to be 10 years or 100 years from now, but as we know, every minute that is ticking off the clock right now, time is running out and it's getting later in the day. And so in this verse, it's, it's, it's saying that it's late and time is running out. And I love this right here. Come on, say this with me. Say these two words with me. Come on, wake up. Wake up. Look at somebody next to you. It might be early Sunday morning and just poke them for a moment and just tell them to wake up. And I love this verse. This verse is simply saying, wake up. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first 
believed. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's time to wake up. Okay, now, Pastor Bruss, I, I don't disagree with that right there. He's put, he's touching on, as you said earlier, the fundamental problem. That of salvation. Wake up for salvation. He's not going to use it for that reason. He's not going to use right. it for that. Right. He's going to say, wake up for salvation, but then wake up for that purpose that God has right. given you that you're not fulfilling. Yeah, so there's this, you know, I mean, when Paul talks this way, right, there's this, uh, what's going through his head is make sure you're calling, okay, that's one thing. But, you know, if, if we want to talk about scriptural purpose, you know, and, and think about it in the biggest terms possible, like God's highest purpose for us, there are some really awesome go-to places that I think our listeners might want to tune into here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this is what God has already done. His purpose in doing this was to save us. Now, what's our residual or natural purpose as a result of all this? Well, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in eternity. God prepared these that we should walk around in them. That's truly a purpose clause in Greek. Uh, this is the reason why God prepared these good works, is that we should walk around in them. That's an interesting one, isn't it? That's our purpose, good works. Sure, but, you know, just walking around doing good works for people, is that really going to leave a legacy? You, you have a good point. I mean, you have a good point. If, I mean, these people want to leave a legacy. Right. right. That's what this pastor is right. trying to, to get them to live past. Leave to, your mark on the world. Right. In a big way. Again, this goes back to what we were saying earlier is that is, is, is why this is so difficult. It, it's both super simple, the Lutheran way, uh, the scriptural way, and it's so difficult. And, and isn't isn't this the difficulty is that we grasp and do this by faith. I do not see the results of my good works. I'm probably not even conscious of most of my good works. But I go to bed every night, examine my life. Here I've lived according to the Ten Commandments. Here I've broken them. I repent of uh, my sins, uh, receive the forgiveness that is mine in Christ, and go to sleep and get up the next day and do the same exact thing, striving after small good works. And these small good works are the ones that hit me across the forehead in my daily vocation. They are not legacy-driven good works. I'm going to go out this afternoon and I'm going to go on homebound calls. I'm going to go to people that everybody else doesn't pay attention to who are not going to say anything to anybody else about what Pastor Bruss did, but I'm going there out of duty uh, and uh, out of my calling and out of love for Christ to bring them God's word that he might keep them in the faith. That's an enduring, everlasting legacy. I'm never going to see in this life the results of my work. You mean those shut-in people aren't going to get together and... Host, have a party for host me. a dinner. No. And invite you up. No. And honor me. <laughs> yeah. No. No. You're not going to be in the paper for that? No. No. Isn't that interesting? A documentary? No, no documentary. It would be the most boring documentary <laughs> you could ever do. But these are the good works to which the Lord has called us as pastors. Uh, and everybody else in their daily vocation has good works to, to which the Lord has called them. It's showing up at your screwing a nut on a bolt job giving it all you got, getting done with work, going home, and being loving to your family. 
that's what it is. There are no books about this. I mean, there are no the Bible's all about it, but there are no books. <laughs> there are no there are no uh, movies about it, books about it, right? Right. But the old man, the old Adam, is the one that is longing for the banquet. He's anxious, isn't he? To be recognized at the ceremony with the award. He's anxious. This this is pretty heavy-duty theology, but I wonder if, if we could go down this road for a little bit. There's this great anxiety in the ancient world, and even in our world. I mean, we see it. You're talking about leaving a legacy, right? This great anxiety about when I die 50 years from now, who's going to remember me? Um, this is the old Adam. He wants to live on in some way or another. And so in the Iliad and the Odyssey, the, the highest honor that you can have is to have this huge, what they called a bema, a tumulus, a huge burial mound with a stele, a pillar of stone set up on top of it that people would remember forever and say, there lies Hector or there lies Achilles, who, whoever it is, so that you live on in memory. Now, I'm just going to go a little further with this, okay? Please. The problem in the ancient mind is that you succumb to what the Greeks called lethe, uh, which is forgottenness. In fact, in their eschatology, you crossed over this river uh, of Lethe and you drank its waters, and there was you, you became unfor- you became forgotten as a result of this. Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." Now, that's we translate that word "truth." It, its actual Greek stem is "aletheia," unforgottenness. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Put this in the context of what he's saying. He's talking about the resurrection. You understand this, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the aletheia, the unforgottenness, and the life. What does he do except for this, that he needs no memorial stone? Why does he not need any memorial stone? Because he is not dead. Beautiful. The old Adam knows that life is not supposed to end. He knows that. Inside of our DNA, we have this knowledge. That's why we cry when people die and, and why we mourn our own passing from this earth. We know it was not supposed to be this way. And what does the old Adam do but get busy about it, try to create legacies, the modern equivalent of the ancient tumulus and stele and all that sort of stuff. But in Christ, this crisis is entirely resolved because he is put to death for the sin of the world, for the sin of the old Adam. Uh, he is raised again to new life, and all who are in Christ will rise again to everlasting life. And this entirely lifts anxiety over legacy. And it frees me up to do the small good works that I am called to do in my vocation, being faithful to my wife, uh, being a loving father to my daughter, being a faithful preacher of God's word. Think about this, Pastor Kearns. Why can you say, what steals you to have somebody sitting in your office who has succumbed to a great sin, what steals you to be able to say, you have to repent of this sin? Is that some something that people want to hear? No. No. But what steals you, is that the good work you're called to do? Absolutely. What steals you to do it is to say, I don't have to find my legacy here. I don't have to, you know, if this thing goes a way that I don't want it to go, doesn't matter. God's going to take care of it, and I will live in the resurrection. I'm sorry. I, this this was a long No, it's talk. great. It's and, great. And you might want to cut it out. No, because my mind is flooded with all of the books and sermons that I've heard about leaving a legacy. Yeah. Yet again, it's just another dead-end road. Mm-hmm.
that you just waste time and energy and thought on. I mean, look, when you're 20-something years old and you're reading a book about leaving a legacy, what are you going to do? And the, you know, the point of the book is you've got to set habits in place now and master those habits and do them over the course of your life so that you'll leave a legacy. It's, it, 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 it's the a, evangelical world is just it's just the it's like the carrot on the stick. Here's an, yeah. here's another carrot. You're going to run after this one. Here's another carrot. You're going to run after this one. All the while you you're trying to please God, asking Him to give you a legacy. And then you get my age. You're looking back, going, "There's not much here right. that anybody's going to remember." And then you think there's a part of you that you know. I at this point in my life, I don't go. You know, I need to get on the ball. At this point in my life, I'm like, good. I'll I'll drink a cup of the Alethe. I, I forget forget, forget what me. Yeah, right, 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 right. right. Uh, is, isn't that interesting? And and that is, I would argue, that is living in, that is truly living in Christ. Right. Uh, I mean, Col- this Colossians verse. This is interesting. Colossians three three. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. In fact, look, this whole thing, uh, what I've been talking about, is right here. Okay, I'm going to read it. 3, 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Let me interrupt you. If you're in Christ, that is a result of what God did to you in your baptism. Exactly. You are in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. So if you are if if then you have been raised with Christ and that's that's in your baptism seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth a legacy for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Can the I, evangelical th- wants that, but he also wants this over here. The it's legacy. the serving of two masters. Right. Can I go on and just point this out? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And this striving after a legacy uh, is really a, a form of covetousness. Which is idolatry. Which is idolatry. Well, let's see if this pastor mentions these things. (laughs) And so in waking up, here's the question for this morning. The question for this morning as we launch into this new sermon series called Explore God is simply this. Does life have a purpose? Does life have a purpose? Does my life have meaning? You know, last Sunday in our anniversary Sunday, we talked a lot about legacy. We heard about that. We, we heard that concept, legacy. And legacy is about leaving an impact. It's about leaving a mark for the next generation. And so you might be sitting there wondering, man, am I, am I doing anything with my life? And maybe you're sitting here this morning wondering, what is my purpose in life? What's my meaning in life? And I'm just going to tell you, listen, you have purpose. You have potential in your life. The question is, are you walking and living in that purpose, or are you living defeated? I'm sorry, Pastor Bruss. I just have to do this. I know it's probably not the most appropriate thing to play, but here goes. Purpose. It's that little flame that lights a fire under your ass. (laughs) Purpose. 
It keeps you going strong like a car with a full tank of gas. Everyone else has a purpose, so what's mine? Huh. Oh look, here's a penny. It's from the year I was born. It's a sign. Ha! Ba 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 ba, do 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 do. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out. Don't wanna wait. Got to make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. Every one of you, every one of you, whether you're here at Millbrook, whether you're at Wake Forest and Apex, whether you're watching online in some other country this morning, let me just encourage you with the reminder that you have a purpose in life, that you truly have purpose, that there's something inside of you that has got potential. Oh, Pastor Bruss, I am so glad this guy is telling me this because this is exactly the way I feel about me. Oh my goodness, this is old Adamic stuff, right? Old Adam stuff. He is trying to identify a source of purpose, not outside of you in God's objective standards uh, and pronouncements in his will expressed for human life, he is trying to find the purpose as emerging from some sort of, what, it, baby boomer, romantic, individualistic feeling. And then on top of that, and I'm assuming that this we're going to hear more of this, you've got to go, as the song said, you've got to go find this. You don't, you, you're not, you don't have to look very far. He said it's inside you. And where would that be? Well, it's inside you. Where? Under my liver? <laughs> Near my pancreas? I mean, wh where exactly is this purpose to be found inside of me? What moves you, Pastor Kearns? I mean, I think this is what he's saying. You know, how, what stirs you? What, do you? what do you get fired up about in the morning? You know, where do you see yourself in five years? And this is a super easy question to answer isn't it? For most people, we're all dreamers. I mean, I really don't think you have to go looking too far. Uh, it's not like you're, you're scanning the whole world for your purpose and you're going to find it in uh, some cave in Australia. Uh, you're going to find it right inside you. And basically, this is just like there's a genie inside there. And all you got to do is pull the cork off the top of the bottle. Girls think of their wedding based upon movies that they've seen or say the royal wedding if they got up in the middle of the night to watch that so the idea here is is that other stimuli has put expectations inside of our head nine times out of ten that other stimuli is not from god or his word it's from a secular persuasion you know, look, it does not take a rocket scientist to figure this out. You know, like, you see these fight scenes in movies. Like, fights don't last that long. Once a guy gets hit one good time, it's over. Right. But the fight goes on and on and on, and so then we just pick up on these things that we see or that we hear or the music that we hear, whatever. The world is constantly catechizing us into that which is 
false. Good. So the point is, is that if I go looking inside, I guarantee you I'm going to find that which is completely and utterly false, a fantasy world. You're, you're totally right. And that was that that is exactly the kind of the point I wanted to, to drive at. This stuff is as near to you. I mean, you don't need to go looking for it. It is as near to you as opening up your eyes. So we've identified two already. The world. Mm hmm our own sinful flesh, and all we need to add to this mixture to is this the devil. Is the devil to the volatile mixture, and there you're going to wind up in in just a, a pickle. And it's not just how good you are. It's not just about what you can do for yourself. It's about the reality, and come on, somebody, that you've got the living Jesus living inside of you, which means you've got endless potential. You have purpose in life. And so does my life have purpose? Where do you find meaning in life? That's another way of saying this is where do you find meaning in life? And so where do you try to find purpose? Well, some people try to find purpose in their jobs. Some people try to find purpose working all the time. Some people try to find purpose working. It's in their job. They try to find purpose. Some people try to find the meaning of life in money, in money. That's where some people try to find it. And, and by the way, this list that I'm kind of walking through there's nothing wrong with any of these things. There's nothing wrong with your job. There's nothing wrong with money. What happens, though, and where the difficulty lies is when our purpose, our sole purpose in life, or our sole meaning in life is about money. Come on, it's got to be more than that, isn't it? Is not life more than just money? Is not life more than just your job? Well, some people try to find purpose in a relationship. Don't they look so cute? Uh, don't you want to go try to do that today? Right, relationships. We all ooh and ah over relationships, but some people who are lost in who they are, they try to find their purpose in relationships. Right? If you don't know who you are first, if you're not solid in God first, and then you try to find your purpose of life in another person, man, we all know what's going to happen there, right? You've got to be solid in who you are first. Once again, nothing wrong with relationships. We were, we were created to have relationships. We were created to be with other people. We were created to, to spend time and do life together. So there's nothing wrong with relationships. What about this? What about success? All right, so he's going through his typical listing. He's got pictures on the screen and he's saying, you know, we look for our purpose and our money and our job and our success. I think he's got several more. I mean, this is all good, isn't it? I mean, he's he's tearing down the idols of the American heart. I guess the way you and I would say it is all of these things can be abused. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's the idolatry of the created order. Sure, but I mean, so far, can, can we give him kudos for for not being so crass? as to just allow people to imagine that their marriage is the thing that is the brass ring. That's good. But I, I think it's so juvenile. Are you saying uh, cookies on the lowest shelf? It's not even cookies. It's like a, a, a fish, like the goldfish that the little mm. children eat. Sure, but we just preached on, on God and Mammon, you know, two, three weeks ago here now, right, in the lectionary. And the people needed to be reminded that money is not yeah, their God. But the way you preach and the way that this guy preaches is totally different. You're onto something here, and I would love to know where. So what I'm doing is I'm commending him for not allowing the world, you know, at least in these regards, or your own sinful flesh, at least in these regards, to sort of take over the control room and drive the train. But what you're saying is it's filler. 
That's all this is. It's like artificial flavoring, enriched flour. It's yellow number six. It's it's just in there, but man, I don't know what it is. Because he's not coming at this from a beware of making these an idol. He's just throwing it out there. I'm trying to understand your critique here. He's there to talk about purpose. That's what's in the box. All this stuff he's talking about right now is styrofoam peanuts. That's what he is. He does not care about any of this stuff, just like my kids don't care about styrofoam peanuts. They're wanting to get to what's in the box. So we're just we're just using this to um, move our hand around in the box to see if we can feel for the package Graham and Grandpa sent us. That's exactly right. What about being on the success road map, right? On the road to success, you feel that your purpose in life is all about how good you can get, right? Taking the next step in your journey, taking the next job promotion, winning at everything you do. Once again, nothing wrong with that. Be driven. That's fine. Pursue it, right? Do the best you can. And Scripture says work as if you're working for the Lord. So do everything you can to do your very best in life, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But once again, when my success in whatever I'm doing outweighs my meaning and my purpose in Christ, there's a problem. There's a problem. So is it your job? Is it money? Is it relationships? Is it success? And, and what about family? Maybe it's your family. Once again, it's a beautiful family. Once again, nothing wrong with family at all. Right? Family is instituted by God himself. But if your only purpose in life is your family, you're still missing something. As good as that is and as good of a husband and a father or a mother or a wife or kids or grandparents as you can be, please, by all means, have the best family you can create and you can have. But your sole meaning and purpose in life still is not just found in there. And then, of course, we've got to add in this because fall is coming and the greatest sport of all mankind is just a few weeks away. So we've got to talk about sports. What about sports? Some people find their whole purpose. Do you ever meet somebody that is so, such a radical about their sport, about their team, about their players, that everything else just shuts down and that, that's all they can do in life? And so some people, they find their identity in sports, whether you're playing them or whether you're watching them in life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2 the writer, who is very wise, by the way, right, the, the wisest person, writes this, everything is meaningless. Thank you, have a good day, right? You, you read that verse and you're thinking, everything is meaningless? Come on, everything can't be meaningless. And then he kind of says it again. He says, says the teacher, and not only everything is meaningless, he says, completely meaningless, what a defeating verse that is if you read that in the wrong context, right? Everything is meaningless. Really, is everything truly meaningless? He goes on to say that there's nothing new under the sun, that everything's been done has before, it's been done, it's going to be done again. And it's just over and over and over and over and over again. But see, what this writer is talking about, it's not that life is meaningless. It's not that we don't have purpose. It's not that we don't have potential because, man, how often does Jesus try to call us to our very best, right? He wants us to have joy in life. He wants us to pursue him. So there's got to be something more. But what this writer is saying is simply in this statement is that life is meaningless without God. Pastor Kearns, do you know what a slurry store is? No. Dairy country knows these. They're big manure storage tanks. And what happens is the farmers pump the manure in there all summer long, and it bakes in the sun. <laughs> 
Seriously, and it gets this huge, thick crust on the top. Right. As I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, I, I'm up there on the edge of the slurry store with a pry bar trying to loosen up this thing, and I'm just whacking it and whacking it and whacking it, and it is such a mass of congealed manure mm-hmm. that the pry bar keeps bouncing off the top. I, can't, I mean, how do you even respond to this I, I mean uh, in all honesty this is what this is how I feel about listening to this stuff it'd be like bringing a critique a theological critique to a freshman in high school's informative speech in class I just kept thinking I feel like I'm eating goulash in the sense that grandma took everything that was in the refrigerator and made this pot of stew I don't know what is in here but like I'm I'm being made to eat it. I mean, I like where he's going with Solomon in Ecclesiastes, but but then he's going to try to backtrack and say your purpose still matters. It still has meaning. You know what? This is a, here's an interesting thing. You know, he's saying don't turn marriage into your idol, don't turn this into your idol, that into your idol. But, but your purpose? Your purpose has become your idol. You can you can bow down and worship that bad boy all day long. Right, especially if you're going to become so uh, narrowly focused on this thing. My goodness, wake up, put your shoes on, do good works all day long, and go to sleep. And I thought that was interesting where he's talking about the family. I mean, I get it, I guess, that your family can become your idol. But when you think about a father, he's doing exactly what God wants him to do in providing, protecting, serving teaching that is his purpose his vocation and so but you're i mean you're you're absolutely right about about what a father's duty is and he should be a hundred percent invested in his role as a father so you know let's think about this this is this is a sermon that is directed at a key demographic designed to put tushes in the pew is it not these are people who are sort of starting off and on the upswing of adult life. Talk about self-serving. I mean, you, you've got growing incomes in this demographic. Uh, you've got the potential for more children because they're still fertile. And to me, this is a, I don't know, I just came up with this insight, but I think it's sort of interesting to think about, you know, if you were to get up and proclaim the whole counsel of God, uh, that's not going to appeal in the same way to a group of 35-year-olds as telling them that they've got some massive purpose in life, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this pastor is not going to be at the back of the door greeting people as they leave. That's just not in the evangelical DNA. You don't touch your parishioner's hands? No. I'm just imagining one person coming up to the pastor and saying, thank you so much. I have always known that I have had great potential. And that God is calling me to to something that is beyond myself. Thank you, Pastor, for pointing that out. I can't wait to go home and really begin to to look for it. Let's let's go back and level the the most um, important critique that can be made of any sermon. There is no law, and there is no gospel here. Nothing. Not yet. I, if I recall, it's been a while, but I think he's going to like, he's going to move into this territory. And I think 
I think you and I both are going to get very excited about it. But the problem is, it's like he's wandering around in the dark in a no trespassing area. Or once he gets into this area, he doesn't know the layout of the land. So he, everything is very tenuous. Yes! And it's like he slowly begins to back out. That'll be interesting to hear. But when you add God to the equation, all of a sudden everything has meaning. So yeah, so if your only pursuit in life is money or your only pursuit in life is happiness, if your only pursuit in life is a family or relationships or jobs or success or career and on and on and on that goes, if that's your only purpose in life, all of that's going to go away. It's all meaningless. But what would happen if you pursued your job and success, but you pursued God first? What if you love being a family member, a father, a mother, a husband, wife together, but you pursued God first? See, also in Scripture it says to pursue God first. Then all these things will be added. So, so chase after God first. So, so once again, though, the question is this is, well, then what's my purpose in life? Why am I here? If it's not to make a living, if it's not only to be successful, it's not only to have a family or find relationships or find that special somebody, why am I on this earth? Why has God placed me on this earth? What is my purpose? And so as we launch this Explore God's Servant series, let's answer this question. And there's probably a lot of different answers you can go with this, but I want to go to the Scripture, and I want to point out a very clear purpose that you and I can have. So instead of giving us a whole lot of purposes in life, I want to bring it into what the Bible says about purpose. And what the Bible says about purpose is simply this. Every person on earth was created for two purposes. To know and love God personally and to love people. And you might be sitting there going, yeah, but what about this and what about this other thing? Well, once again, there's nothing wrong with other things. However, my primary purpose for being on this earth, and yours is too, is to know and love God personally. And then the second is to love people. Which is all law. No gospel is going to be attached to this at all. And this is really indicative of a lot of the uh, taglines that you see uh, for churches these days. Oh, I've seen those on the on the big sort of church growthy churches, love God, serve people or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. I mean, we're talking bumper stickers, T-shirts. Uh, it's usually love God, love others, serve the world. They don't see that in terms of this is all law. Those are like hooks that get inside people, and they become this driving sort of, look, we've, we've boiled down all of the Bible and thousands of years of church history into these, what, six, seven words? I, I hear your critique, and I've, I've seen those before, and I've thought, oh my goodness, how could the mission of a congregation be entirely rooted in the law? And yet, as individuals called by the gospel, who are redeemed by the blood of Christ— we do desire to live a new life, and so, and we want to live a new life, and this, this is actually the Ten Commandments are the thing that give us our marching orders in our relations in this world. So, but they so don't see it of, in third use. Correct. There's, there's something out of whack here, and that's the issue. If you're going to take your three-part your, your three bumper sticker that you were talking about, change the world, 
that actually steps away from God's law. It's man-made law. Okay, great. What does that mean? What does that look like? Right? You got to put some flesh on those bones. You know, without changing the world at all, you've got enough to do in life with just obeying one commandment perfectly every single day. It ain't going to happen. So what you're saying is, here's the t-shirt, love God, love others, serve the world. You're wanting to say, okay, how much of this is rayon and how much of this is cotton? And the tag, so to speak, on this shirt is the Ten Commandments, because that is what tells us, the first three particularly, tells us how to love God. The other seven tell us how to love each other. This change the world business is just something that we threw in there, totally man-made, to make it sound like, wow, we're, we're supporting a cause bigger than ourselves. Right, and it gives me purpose. And uh, so what you're saying here with your, with your T-shirt analogy is that we're talking about like 5% cotton and 95% nylon and rayon. Right. Yeah. Now, again, he hasn't said change the world. But I know he hasn't, but we're, we're critiquing just sort of general evangelicalism on this matter, right? Right. Now, of course, we're also here to do other things. We're here to do works. We're here to fulfill the commission. We're here to, to do what God has placed. We, we're, God put joys and dreams and desires and passions in us. Talk about a bowl of goulash. <laughs> <laughs> but it did point out exactly what you just got through saying a minute ago, is that we've got all these things over here that are, that are good and commendable, but let's not let them crowd out the purpose that we're bowing down to. See, and isn't this a weird thing? And the way the way he dismisses them, it's it's like you're teaching a class, right? And you're what you're trying to do is you're trying to emphasize every every day you show up, you got to have your textbook, and then you say, and of course you got to have your pencil. Everybody, of course, knows this, and we're not going to focus on it. It's a dismissive, of course. And I think I know where this is coming from. This congregation, they know some Bible. Now, that's probably the older generation because the younger generation has been spoon-fed stuff like this. This is to stop the person who might come up to him afterwards and say, well, you know, I heard what you said, but what about the Great Commission? I heard what you said, but what about the passage in Ephesians about, about doing good works? So this is kind of a— Get a, off my back. Right. Yeah, yeah. And did you notice how he took how he took dreams and aspirations or whatever else he was talking about there? Dreams and—what did he say? Dreams and—and and he mixed them all together with the Great Commission, <laughs> with good works. I mean— Goulash. Go, yes, total goulash. So what I'm not saying— is that these two purposes are the only things that you will ever do in life and forget everything else. That's not at all what I'm saying. But if you're going to try to find true purpose in life, this is where you start. You start with loving God and knowing Him personally, and you start with loving people. Oh, okay, I get Okay, so this is like a 12-step a program to my, to my purpose. You start here, you buy the T-shirt, but then you work through, maybe it's more like... Maybe it's more like the Freemasons or Masonic. I mean, you work your way up to levels here. It's all coming together, Pastor Bruss. It's scary because it's instrumentalizing uh, what God says for some purpose that God did not give. Number two, uh, another interesting thing that he that doesn't even enter the formula here in his thinking is that, as you've pointed out, this is all law. This is saying, do it, damn it, without Christ. And you've got to believe if the first step is law, guess what the second step is? 
It's going to be more law. With no Christ. What do you think the third step's going to be? More law, no Christ. Good. And, and the, the further down that line we get, the more removed from what God actually says it becomes. So you're saying then we move more into the man-made law? Totally, right? I mean, where does, where, where does God command us to find a purpose in life? He doesn't at all. See, this is scary stuff. Exactly. And then if you have me constantly having to go into myself to find these things, oh, man. I know it's one thing for us to gripe about these things. The issue is, is when you hear this for 30 years. My point is, you and I are critiquing that which is poison. But it can be drunk. Obviously, the people who are listening to it there, they don't necessarily walk away with... Immediate side effects. Right. Right. But then we keep on coming back. I mean, but it's their all, liver's dying. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's like those terrible stories that we hear of caregivers who slowly poison the person that they're giving care to by, you know, just putting, what, antifreeze in their soup or something. And it takes a long time, but eventually it it does what it's intended to do. And it's hard to spot. It's hard to spot. And I would guess that if you are in uh, the congregation, right, you're talking about a 30-year history, and you had mentioned earlier that there are probably people who are going to come up to, you know, if they could, come up to him after the service and say, well, what about Ephesians chapter 2? And what about the Great Commission? So he, he's, dis, he's dismissed this. But the point is, what's happened here is, you know, it's the uh, frog in the boiling water. Gradually, it builds and builds and builds and morphs and changes uh, till... Until it, we can put the frog in the goulash? Right, exactly. It gets so soft, you can put him in the goulash. But, but how much serious biblical content have we had in how many minutes of this guy speaking? Probably... A minute and 30 seconds, most, of Scripture and the teaching of Scripture. But those are two totally different things. When we're not starting with the text, which we didn't, when we're not talking about the context of the text, which you don't hear any sort of teaching on context. Because there is no text. I can remember a friend of mine back the summer after college gotten into law school and gotten into seminary and I was making the decision to, you know, which way to go. I said to him, I think I'm going to go to the seminary. And he said, oh, I think that'd be great. You'll love that. You can think about, you know, what's really pressing on your mind all week long and just get up on Sunday and talk about it. And I just thought, what a weird concept of what the ministry is. What a terrible sermon. Oh, it'd be awful. But (laughs) is that what we're hearing? That's what we're hearing. (laughs) I mean, do you, do you think that, that there was that there is any scriptural, like this guy was reading the scriptures over the week? No. no. He knew that what he needed to do was the pretext for getting up this Sunday was talking about purpose. That need is driven by the demographic demands of the audience, which they are catering to in order to, you know, have this burgeoning enterprise. That's what it is. It's an enterprise. It's not a church. So some Lutheran starts talking like this. Like, what are you thinking when you hear this? 
Well, I'm thinking, why did you punt on the gospel and the law? I mean, it's a category foreign to Christianity. But I think this starts with like Viktor Frankl, the Auschwitz victim. And he's got that book on his time in there and, and really asks, what's, what's the purpose? What's the meaning of all of this? And that became, that's a very popular book. And what is and that book called? Of, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, it's a small it's little volume, small. isn't it? Yeah, it's very, very small. That is so interesting. You bring that up. I'll tell you why they they punt on vocation uh, and why they adopt purpose. I mean, per- vocation is not a substitute for purpose. They are different things altogether. Uh, vocation begins with the locatedness of the human being. And it says, you are whom God has made you to be. Okay? You're a man. You are, you know, mid-40s. Uh, you're married. You have children. Well, guess what? Uh, that's what God has made you to be. That's the starting point. So I don't, I don't have to be esoteric about this. I don't have to be Gnostic about this. You're, you're just pointing out the, the things that really anybody could notice about me, complete strangers. Right, but, but it's boring, and I, I, think there's it's a great, boring. I think there's a huge scandal here. And the scandal is this, that it locates you as a creature. You are not, you, you do not create and make and sustain yourself. But purpose language is impervious to that kind of location of the creature under God. But as soon as you are a creature, then you are what God made you, then you are answerable to what God demands of you, and that changes the game. So vocation and purpose are two totally different I see. birds. So vocation then really does place me as what I am, which is dependent, whereas purpose language puts me at the epicenter of the entire universe, and God now is dependent upon me. Yes, yes. God becomes this tool. We heard him, right? He said, oh, of course you do this stuff. And then he mishmashed the you know two really cardinal teachings of Scripture. Good works. Good works, great commission with your dreams. Oh my goodness. And you're saying that is the antifreeze in the soup. Yeah. So, okay, Viktor Frankl's book is uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, I read it a long time ago. It's thought-provoking in a secular kind of way. But you're saying even Frankl was talking about this. It's 1959. And then when I was... In high school, I believe, there was a guy by the name of Robert, I want to say his last name was McGee, and he wrote a book called The Search for Significance. Is that from a Christian perspective? Yeah, yeah. So Frankel is not. He's a Jew. Right. Yeah. So whether it's in the secular world or whether it's in the Christian world, all of this stuff has been bubbling. I mean, the reason it sells is because it appeals. It appeals. To the old man. To the old man. And there are probably actually even sociological reasons for this, right? With the burgeoning of sort of middle-class bourgeois society and the, the, the explosion in transportation and um, the fact that people live away from families and so on, there's a lot less kind of rootedness and locatedness. And people have forgotten the, the way in which God's Word speaks to their, to their lives. And here's the verse in Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. It says, and you must. So it's not, it's not if you feel like it, right? It's not if you can. 
He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second, do you see what he says there? It's equally important. That's kind of a powerful statement. So the first is, love God with everything you have. Love him with everything you are. And the second is just as important, and that is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And this right here is exactly what the evangelicals do not get. They can't do that. They will sing, I surrender all. None of them do. They will say, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart. None of them do. All my mind, all my strength. I mean, really, you're supposed to do this with the totality of your being and then to love somebody else as myself? Sure. Do I want to do it? Yeah. I don't, though. I mean, look, I am really good at loving me. When I have a scratch, I will move heaven and earth to take care of that. But if you have a need, if it is convenient for me, I will take care of it. If it's not convenient for me, brother, I'm probably not going to help you. He does not realize that the Scripture is condemning everybody in there. He doesn't. Uh, and he also, I, I, I was surprised at his translation. Were you surprised at that? It says you must love. Right. It says you, sh- I mean, I just checked the Greek text. It's. Uh, I was wondering if Mark had a variant or something like that. Uh, no, it is you shall love. And what's interesting about that phrase is that it is in the indicative. We take it as a commandment, but it's actually a description. And that description is filled, right? We, we live up to that description only in Christ because Christ has done that for us, not because we ourselves fulfill it. Now, that doesn't mean that we oughtn't strive for that to meet the description, but it's entirely fulfilled in Christ. And yeah, there's no talk of that. No, the gospel is nowhere to be found here. Didn't he say it's not up to your feelings? This is something that you must do. So this is all sheer willpower now? Yeah, it's making you will against your will, which is impossible. No other commandment is greater than these. No other commandment is greater than these. This is it. So if you want to know what your purpose in life is, you've got to start with loving God with everything you have and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's where we start. That is the purpose that you and I have in life. To which I say, good luck with that. Good. <laughs> yes. Uh, our, our righteousness in this life is only a start on what our righteousness will be, number one. Number two, again, look at how, how he's instrumentalized God's commandment. If you want to have a purpose in life, start here. Well, you know what the Lutheran would say? Start here and end here. So it never leaves the look, commandments. Look, man, if you can, if you can f- fulfill these commandments in the way that Jesus gives them, in this life, uh, strive, you, you start, start now, okay, and give me a call when, when you've done it. But isn't there, a, isn't there a story in the Bible that deals exactly with that, where the young man says, what do I need to do? Right. And Jesus says, well, do this, 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 and that guy goes, eh, I've done all that. And then he goes, okay, then sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and then come follow me. Right, he gave him something that, that he couldn't do, that was impossible for him, or, or, or one that he said, I'm not, I'm not willing to do that. 
Which really goes back to the first commandment, does it not? Yes. Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Which he's not doing. Which he's not doing. Right. Which was you, the, the commandment was used to point at his inability to keep the commandments. He thought he had graduated from these things. Good. Jesus yeah. is like, you're not even close, right. man. Right, you're not even in kindergarten yet. So let's dive into these just for a few minutes and just to drill these in a little deeper. What does it look like to know and love God personally? So how does that actually work, and what happens when we do that? Pastor Bruss, you know, the Lord has laid this out for us, exactly what this looks like. And I'll be doggone if he didn't, like, write it with his finger the first time on tablets of stone. Do you think this pastor is going to go to the Ten Commandments to flush out what it means to love God and love others? Uh, based upon the way you're asking the question, I'm assuming the answer is no. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then he spent, um, you know, the next several uh, millennia preaching to people about it through his prophets. Then he illuminated and elucidated it uh, in his son Christ and in the apostles. Yeah, there's a lot to work with here. Nathan comes to David, who has committed adultery and had Uriah killed. He gives him the parable uh, of the sheep, and then says, when, when David says, that man deserves to die, Nathan says, you're the man. You deserve to die. Why? Because you've broken the commandments. Adultery, and you've killed. And then you've, I mean, you could say you coveted another man's wife. I mean, it's more than just those commandments. And lied. Right. You've deceived the entire nation in thinking that you're a magnanimous human being by taking in this widow to provide for her, and the entire country has applauded at your generosity, and you've deceived them all. Multiple commandments have been broken before God, and you deserve to die as a result of this. I guess I'm trying to underscore your point about God sending his prophets to the people pointing out the commandments and their failure to keep them. Nathan is doing the exact same thing. He just doesn't say, this commandment you broke, this commandment you broke, this commandment you broke, and this one you broke. And he also doesn't say, David, you got to find a purpose in life. What? <laughs> no, David, what David needed to do was repent. And he did. And this, this is what makes David the man after God's own heart. He doesn't follow after other gods. And when he's called on the carpet, he repents. Whereas Saul's called on the carpet by Samuel, and he doesn't repent. Solomon, as we know, goes chasing and a-whoring after other gods. David doesn't—he doesn't do any of those things. And he's allowed to do that. It's uh, through the Lord's forgiveness of sins, located in David's greater son. So, in other words, when we know and love God personally, here's what happens in your life. Right? The first thing is this, is that we have life. So when you know and love God personally, you then have life. You have true life. You have the real, the real deal, the real life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. This is just a really good example of somebody who needs a solid seminary education. Uh, what he has done is he has um, made life contingent upon loving God. In other words, contingent upon fulfilling the law. And 
I mean, good goodness, right? I mean, John three sixteen. All all you got to have is that in your head to understand that he's he's taken the track is switched here and he's going down the wrong road, uh, right? For oh, think about how John puts it. For for God so love love the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever what loves him no. no believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it's faith worked as a gift through the Holy Spirit in the heart of the sinner that gives everlasting life. I mean, love uh, is not the precipitating cause. In other words, life that he's talking about here is not contingent upon love. If it were, we'd be in a pickle. Why? Because the love that is demanded in the law is impossible even in the new life in Christ to fulfill completely. We just have a start on it. And the evangelical, I should say, boy, they love that John chapter 10 passage. Because when Jesus says what he says about abundant life, they don't look at abundance being a synonym for eternal. They do not think that way. They see the word abundant, and then they attach whatever meaning they want to abundant life. Abundant in material terms only. Correct. You know, my, my uh, Greek text here has a really interesting cross-reference for John 10.10 uh, 10 to uh, John 5.24. Amen, amen, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life. And will not come into judgment. But he has already crossed over from death into life. When you love God and you know him personally, you have life. Jesus comes and gives you life. And guess what also comes with that? Your purpose. What are you going to make of your life? That's also part of this. Big old scoop of goulash right there. Just force-fed it down your mouth. He sure did. And uh, think about the version of the Bible that he's reading from. Let's, you know, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life and a purpose. For you, God's workmanship, right, um, in Christ Jesus, made for good works that you should walk around in them, and you've been given a purpose. And fulfill that purpose. I mean, this uh, this is just the importation of... So it's this quilt work, is what you're saying with the Scriptures, is that we're going we're gonna to cut this piece of fabric here, and we're going to then sew it to this other piece of fabric? Yeah, we have to—don't we have to do that? We have to insert pieces of fabric into the Scriptures to make, to make this account of things work out. All this is pious talk. You get a little sprinkling of Jesus, you get a little sprinkling of the Ten Commandments, and it all sounds fine, and... And certainly this nice young man isn't going to, you know, mislead me in talking about purpose. And, you know, I feel as though I need to have a purpose in life. And you can see how you could fall for this hook, line, and sinker. So Jesus comes to give you life, and it's not just to sit around and, and sing hymns all day. It's not all that life is about. It's not all about going to church and being at church 24-7. They didn't even do that in Jesus' time. That is so silly. Number one, this church does not sing hymns at all. Number two, who do you know who thinks that they're supposed to be at church 24-7? It's silliness. Right, it's a straw man argument, right? It's to, it's to say, I want you to believe in this idea of purpose, so I'm going to set up a false argument, and I'm going to destroy that as if being in church 24-7 is the counterpoint to, to having purpose in life. It's not. 
I, this is such poor argumentation. It's ridiculous. There's purpose that is woven into that fabric of that concept of having life. So when we understand God and know Him and we love Him, that's where our life source comes from. Back to what I was talking about before. If your hope is that you're going to meet somebody and your life is all of a sudden going to have purpose, you are setting yourself up for failure. You really are. Now, it could be part of your success. It could be part of your journey. It could be part of your purpose. But before anything else, you know, we could also say it this way, man, if I just got that job, all of a sudden my life now has purpose. Or if I can just go on this trip or accomplish this one goal in life or, or win the championship or do whatever it is that you want to do, and if you're sitting there in your heart going, if I can just do that, <clears throat> then all of a sudden my life has purpose. You're missing where life really comes from. Life really comes first from knowing who Jesus is. That's where life really comes from. Then out of that, in Scripture, it says all of those other things can be added. So when we know and love God personally, we have life. We also have hope. This is a big deal, right? We have hope. We're living in a time where our culture and our world are going insane around us. There is so much hopelessness, so much loss. There are so many confusing things out there. Every time you turn on the news and look at the media, it just seems like there's one more thing that has changed or being added or looked at differently. And, and man, it looks like there is no hope anywhere. I know this is exasperating here, but when was there ever a time outside of the Garden of Eden before the fall when what he just said did not apply? Right. <laughs> it's yeah. always been it's, this way. Yes. Yeah. It has. And it will be this way regardless of one's purpose until Christ Jesus sets his nail-scarred feet on the ground. At this point in time, I'm I'm dumbfounded because it's like trying to bring a theological critique to a, a freshman in high school's informative talk. Motivational talk. Motivational talk. And let's get real for a moment. Maybe you're sitting here right now. Once again, maybe you're sitting up there at Wake Forest and you're looking around and you're wondering, I don't really feel hope right now. I feel kind of hopeless. Maybe you're feeling a little lost. Maybe life has just hit you with a right and a left hook and you're just sitting there going, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Maybe you're feeling hopeless. Okay. This certainly has happened to people and does happen to people. Now, this is the opportunity. Whatever he gets ready to say next... This is his opportunity to actually be a pastor. What do you say to the hopeless person? The point is, is that I'm very worked up at this point because I'm thinking that he's going to say that your purpose is what is going to give you hope. Again, the gospel won't be mentioned. The forgiveness of sins through Christ, it won't be mentioned. The suffering under the cross won't be mentioned. Suffering under the cross won't be mentioned, and nor will what we started out with and what you brought to mind is the fact that the biggest dilemma that we face in our life is the sin which leads to death and that you're going to die. Talk about hopeless. Point me to something that will give me hope. And so this is the opportunity that he has right now to do that. Yep, and diagnose, diagnose this hopelessness for this life as what it is, right, as a symptom of the, of the greater despair uh, over everlasting life. Well, part of the good news and maybe part of the reality is that your hope, once again, is not what you can do for yourself. That's not where your hope lies. Now, you can help yourself for sure, and you should. In fact, if you're sitting there having a pity party going, poor me, you know, you've got you to get up. 
You, you got to get up and get moving. You can't, you can't stay down. But your hope is not just, if I could just do this, then I'll have hope. Once again, we're talking about the beginnings of purpose of life, where it all launches from. And so if we have hope in Psalm 33, it says it this way. We put our hope in the Lord. He's our help and he's our shield. So it's not we put our hope in our job or we put our hope in the church or in a pastor. It's not that we put our hope in our wife or our kids or our career. Once again, nothing wrong with those things helping, but we put our hope in the Lord because he's our help and he's our shield. In him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. And so trust and hope and our hearts are all mingled into this. Once again, if your purpose in life, if you can usher in your primary purpose, number one is just to know God and to love him personally. Not only does he give you life, an abundant life, but he also gives you hope. That's where your hope rests. He's our rock. He's our shield. He's our fortress. He is the one that we can trust. You could try to put your trust in people, and guess what? People are going to fail you. You could put your trust in your job, and your job might be here tomorrow, and it might be gone the next day. You could put your trust in your money, and economy could tank, and you could lose everything. There's only one person on the face of this planet that has ever walked that is 100 plus percent trustworthy, and his name is Jesus. And that is where your hope begins. That is where your purpose begins and lies. He just blew it. Guns loaded. I am now putting it to my head, and I am pulling the trigger. And, and I stop when he starts talking about Jesus. So I'm like, okay, point me to something other than my sorry situation. And I'm not throwing a pity party, as he's saying here. It's kind of a, a smackdown on me a little bit. But it's like, no, my, my situation is hopeless. I put the gun down, and I think, there's something here. But then it was just, just this dribble that really didn't point me to who Christ is, and what he's done, and certainly not what he's done for me. So now I'm looking at the gun going, well, do I do, I do it or not? Right, and, and I'm thrown right back to finding my purpose. Law. And it's bad law. It's bad law because it's not God's law. Right, it's that goulash or that slurry in the silo. What would 30 years of this type of preaching do to your soul? I think it robs you of Christ. This points up the need, again, for serious, good Lutheran seminary education needed in order even to step foot in a pulpit, where you need to understand law and gospel, where you need to have your theology straight in your mind, where you have to understand when you're importing foreign concepts and, you know, having it warp your theology. All of this stuff has happened in this sermon and he's totally unaware of it. That's the issue. He has no concept. And we're not demeaning him. We're not saying he's not a smart guy. He has never been exposed to the difference between law and gospel and what law does and what the gospel does. Never. Clearly. Because he said, follow the, the law and don't worry about the gospel. I mean, essentially what he's saying is the gospel as you and I have pointed out in the Pluck Chicken, and many other podcasters have said the same thing, the gospel is for salvation and salvation only. Now that you're in the club, and you start to, to work your way up. 
and that gives you hope, and that gives you the abundant life, or whatever other silliness he's saying it gives you. Which leads to the third one is simply this, knowing and loving God, we also have victory. We talk about this a lot. In fact, we talked about this last week, about victory that you and I have. But we got to be able to walk in that. It's like that victory is just in front of you, and whatever victory you need in life, it's like it's right there in front of you. And if we don't follow God first and we think that our win, right, if we want to use the term win, our win is getting the job or our win is making this or our win is getting married to this person and on and on and on that goes, then you miss what the ultimate victory really truly is. In 1 Corinthians it says it this way, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. There's only one person that has triumphed over the sting of death, and he offers it to us. That purpose of life of knowing God and loving him is not just so you have an abundant life. It's not just so you have hope. It's so that you have victory not only in this life, but that you also have victory over hell and over the grave. That is where our victory really is. That is the ultimate hope. That's the ultimate victory. Oh, my goodness. What, why are we just now getting here? What, what is all this other drivel, all this other, what's another word, all this other minutia? What, he, what he's finally gotten on to right now, that's a game changer. And it's good. And it's the purpose of the pastor. I mean, if you want to use pa- uh, purpose here, that's what he should be talking about. But once again, you can't find that. You can't buy that. You can't go search that out in anywhere else other than who, and who God is. Which means that our primary purpose in life, above all things, is to know God and to love him. Okay, our primary purpose in life is to know God. What was the last part? And to know who he is. Okay. Isn't that what he said? I think that's... Now, we're not going to really disagree with this. In my opinion, I think back to the first commandment. Correct. This is what God designed human beings to do. There's no question about it. Right. And what I love about what Luther says is he already assumes that everybody has a God. Right. So it's really fixing your eyes on the one true God. Exactly. And, and, and he's done that here, I would, I would argue, uh, in pointing us to Christ. But hasn't he gone on and on and on? I mean, it's kind of like the, the backdoor approach. We've, we've gone all the way around the house. We've jumped the fence. We've gone into the neighbor's yard just to come in our own back door. Right. I think that this is, I think that this, he's taken way too much time to get there without doubt, right? I mean, a Lutheran sermon would start where he's ending. And that is just such a beautiful thought there. You and I, our sermons, it's like the fluff has been cut out. There is no fat in a Lutheran sermon just because we get right to it. The text drives it. Drives it. We get right to it. Right. And and that's partly time constraints in a Lutheran divine service. But, you know, I think we preach for different reasons uh, from an evangelical, right? I mean, our view of preaching is that it's sacramental, that, that it's actually, it's not purely instructive. It's not like a long Bible class or a Bible class. What it is, is a proclamation of God's law and a proclamation of God's gospel. Wouldn't you say, though, 
this pastor that we're reviewing, he's talking law and he's talking gospel, but he does not see how these two connect. No, we haven't really heard how it is that Christ's victory over sin, death, and devil enables one to love this God who otherwise appears to be an ogre to us as we survey the wreck of our lives and the misery of human life. But of course, isn't this guy in some suburbia, right? You know, so he's talking to people who pull down 120 a year and th- their lives don't appear to themselves to be a wreck. They're living the life of uh, a theologian of glory. Oh, sure they are. I don't want to throw the people under the bus. I mean, you can make $120,000 and live a great life. That's just fine. I'm not saying that. But the problem is it desensitizes you to the reality of sin and death and the devil's power. Duly noted. But I think back to the pastor, and I think about his education, because his education, I'm assuming, was not much different from mine. We were never taught how God speaks in law gospel. And when one just begins to study that, you don't have to study sacraments. I certainly didn't start out with the sacraments. That was too far into me. As a preacher, I wanted to understand law, and I wanted to understand gospel, and how those two connect and how they really are not to be separated rightly divided but not separated correct right right. so when you start to look at it and then you start to see it everywhere and then you start to hear it from the lips of jesus and you you hear it from the apostles you hear it from the prophets my goodness then you analyze your own preaching and think how devoid of law and gospel that it truly is or at least this, the um, the distinction isn't isn't proper. Exactly. He's playing around with tools that he doesn't know how to use. He doesn't know how to use them. And when we know God, we will love people, which leads to the second point this morning, and that is simply this. When we love people, when we love people, it does this to us. We reflect the heart of God. Do you ever think about that? When you love somebody, you are reflecting the heart of God to them. And it has to be to everybody, not just the people we like. We talked about that before. But, but our purpose in life is not just to know God. Remember, it says this is equally as important. Equally as important is that you also love people. And so in First John it says it this way, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, that is a powerful statement. It's not on how well as a human being you can love another human being because that's going to get absolutely exhausting. If all we're doing is relying on how well we ourselves outside of God can love somebody, that's not even where love truly comes from. Love originates and comes from God himself. And we love people the way that God loves us. We are reflecting the heartbeat of God. It says, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's not out to get you. God's not this angry being that's out to destroy the world. It says that God is love. It doesn't just say that God has love. It doesn't say that God shows love. It says God is love. And so when you and I love people best and love people with everything we have in us, it takes it to a whole different level than just what I can do. And what about when I don't? 
I, I'm just confused by this. I, and it's not that I'm confused over what the scriptures say. I'm confused about this mishmash of... So he hasn't even defined what love looks like. It, it has no form. It's, it's formal expression from God is the gift of his son into the flesh and his death for the sins of the world. What is the form of my love toward my neighbor? He hasn't talked about this at all. And I think he's got to be asking people to work up emotions in their heart or something like this, which love is not in the scriptures. Because the Ten Commandments are nowhere... I mean, he's just working with the summary here that Jesus gives, which to the to the person who asked the young lawyer, if I recall, who asked the question to begin with, he knew what the Ten Commandments were. He even well, recited exactly, some of them. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So, so the context was the commandments. Well, this guy is just totally setting those aside as if they have no bearing. And so because he set them aside, then we don't know what love is except it being an emotion. Right. And I think this is so important. I mean, I, I love you. And the way that I love you is by dealing with you as my colleague. I love my wife. I do not deal with my wife the way that I deal with you. And, I, and you should beg the Lord that I would never deal with you like I deal with my wife, right? Of course. I mean, well, you love your mother. You deal with your mother differently than the way you deal with your wife or with your colleague. Right. And all of this stuff is spelled out in the elaborations of the Ten Commandments, right? So, so apart from that, you can't just be talking about this vague mishmash of goopy love. He's not helping anybody here uh, in that regard because love has no um, skeleton and much less does it have any flesh. But isn't I, he accusing everybody in there as well? I mean, this is what the law does. This is why Jesus was saying it to the lawyer to begin with. He is accusing. Somehow or another, he's trying to persuade on one hand because of his poor training and I don't mean that disrespectfully. Right. Mm-hmm. His poor training has led him to use the law to persuade. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's accusing them even of something that the scriptures would never accuse them of. Uh, it's accusing them of not having certain feelings toward certain people. Now, I, I, l- let me just give you an example here, right? How am I supposed to love Donald Trump? He's the president of the United States, right? I have no fond feelings toward Donald Trump at all. In fact, the opposite. But I'm still called upon to love him. So do I have to change my feelings about Donald Trump? No, not at all. What do, what do I need to do to love Donald Trump? Well, the fourth commandment, exactly. I, I think, is very clear. Obey. God has put him in authority. And to respect the fact that he is the president of the United States, my president, and, and to honor him for that reason. Sure. And uh, so... This is what he misses. My neighbor is not served by the level of my emotional attachment to my neighbor. My neighbor is served by what I do according to the Ten Commandments for my neighbor. Great point. And that's the issue. Because God is love. That is the nature of who God is. God's love was revealed among us this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. See, when we love people... We also live God's commands. 
And so when we're loving somebody, we're also living the command that God gave us to. We're fulfilling our purpose, in other words. If God gave us a command, guess what that means? That's our purpose. And so when God says, hey, I want you to do this, or I command you to do this, or this is the greatest commandment to do, that means that this is your purpose. So your purpose is to know God and to love him personally. Your purpose is also to love people. And when we do that, we reflect God's heartbeat, but we also fulfill the commandment that God gave us to fulfill. That was so circular, I can't believe it. He was on the roundabout. He came up to the correct turnoff, the command of God, and then he just went right back around the roundabout. Um, so, so basically, uh, right, when you love, you, you fulfill God's commands Commands. He used it in the plural, toward people. Now, tell us what that is. But what did he do? He just went right around the circle again to saying it's love. Well, he has, he has done, I mean, this, this sermon is swirling around the toilet bowl right now. This is why I wanted to play this sermon. Because as you listen to it, you don't need a crucified and risen Savior for any of this stuff. To do this. No, right. That's a, good, that's a really good point. And 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What a powerful statement. What a powerful statement. And it goes on and says, and we have this command from him. This is the, the command, the purpose. We have this purpose from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. It is not a question. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. It is our purpose. We have to love people. So can we bring up here what we've talked about before in regard to the directionality? Go. Again, I'm, this is my purpose. Again, I'm in the driver's seat. It's my purpose. I'm supposed to be doing all these things. So that, what, I can make God happy, uh, him give me honor, favor, glory, whatever. It's not about what Christ has done for you in freeing you, as you're saying, and continues to do so every day. Yes, that I, I think the directionality thing has, has some merit. And, and I think what we're hearing here, I mean, this is a, the drumbeat is pretty, pr- pretty hard here. Like if, if we're not seeing those works of love, you are outside of Christ. What you just said is a little too severe. You're outside of Christ. <laughs> I just need to get a new purpose. I love how it's worded also in Galatians 5.14. I love this one. It says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. The whole law. Your whole purpose is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Man, what a powerful statement. So if you're wondering what your purpose in life is, if you're wondering what you're supposed to do next, your purpose lies in two ways, knowing God, loving him, and loving people. If you're not doing that first, your purpose is getting lost in something else. Your purpose is being invested in something that's not going to last for eternity. You've got to know God and love him first, which means you've got to love people. And here's the final conclusion. When we know and love God and therefore love people, here's the joy that you and I get. Here's the purpose we get to help somebody else in. We are able to point them and lead them to Jesus. That is the whole goal of this, right? Oh, 
goodness gracious. I mean, it is, it's always going to come back to this motive. And what's, what's sinister about this? It really is church growth. Is to amplify your church. See the numbers go up. Right. I'm used to this evangelical mess. What is this, what is, what is going on when you hear it? I don't even understand it. Uh, we were just talking about this while we had the mic off. I can't even get a, I can't even find a place to to hold on to what he's talking about because I think it, it it's just so full of pious platitudes, circularity, a conflation of all these weird kind of American you know, 21st century American concerns, right? And, and popular culture, like purpose. I mean, seriously. Um, so this is painful for you. You know, this has been, this has been the, the least pleasant uh, sermon that I've listened to. And we've listened to several very unpleasant sermons. I don't even know what he's saying. So if I know and love God personally, which causes me, because I have to, because it's, it's who God is. So if I'm in love with God, God is love, which means that I can't help but love people. Now, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to annoy us. The Lord knows there are some annoying people. You might be sitting next to an annoying person. Maybe this morning you would get ready for church and your whole family annoyed you, right? There is annoying, there's annoyances all around us. But because of my love for God, that, that trumps it. It trumps the little heartaches we face. It trumps the little angers we have. It, it trumps the flare-ups that we have. We are not going to have perfect human relationships. We're just not. There's going to be issues. There's going to be fights. There's going to be quarrels. There's going to be all these things. But at the heart of all of it, if I know and love God personally, and I'm loving people the best that I can, the best outcome that there is is that they're going to be pointed to Jesus. If that's not pious platitude, I don't know what is. It's totally pious platitude, and it's so incorrect. I love the mayor of Topeka. I love the Topeka police. I love Donald Trump. How? By obeying the laws that they have provided in this land and following the authorities. Donald Trump is not going to be led to Christ by me here in Topeka doing that stuff. That's, this is ridiculous. I guess I'm really excited in that I'm becoming more Lutheran because I don't even know what he's saying anymore. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, this may just be, I mean, we have listened to some sermons. You know, that some, some of those sermons on baptism and, and so on where the theology is definitely wrong, but there's an argument and you can actually follow it. Here, it's just one as you said, pious platitude after another that, you know, sort of strung together by uh, the interjection, isn't that powerful? This goes absolutely nowhere. Not only is this not true what he's saying, it's not true in this guy's life. And he knows it. That people are flocking to the Lord because of, of his great love for God and his great love for other people. Mm -hmm. Gratefully, I think to myself, praise God, Jesus Christ, he was the one who loved God the way he's describing, right. and he's the one who loved other people the way that he's describing. Because you can't do it. Not that I don't try, just like you're saying, but I let the Ten Commandments guide me in that. Sometimes there's emotion. A lot of times there's not. Right. Ask my wife. 
Right. <laughs> or or it's the wrong kind of emotion. It's a negative emotion. Right? Sure. Yeah, you do in spite. You Shh. you act dutifully in spite of your emotions. But he is placing such a heavy burden upon the people. And I, and I don't even think they realize it. And fortunately, as you say, uh, this has become water rolling off their back. So I want to take just one minute and I want to walk us through how to allow God to let us use that. Just real quickly, here's, here's some simple conclusions on how to do this, and we're going to pray. The first one that we have to do is you have to listen to the Holy Spirit. Is this more direct download stuff? You know, I don't know. Just pausing him there, I'm a little fearful of what he's going to say. But let's just, before he says whatever he says, how would we say one listens to the Holy Spirit? How do you, Pastor Bruss, listen to the Holy Spirit? I read the scriptures. I listen to your sermons. I listen to what you say uh, in the absolution. I listen to what Christ says to me when he gives me the, his body and blood. It's for me, for the forgiveness of sins. That's how I listen to the Holy Spirit. So you're saying then that the Holy Spirit, when he speaks to you, it's with a voice. It's an audible voice. An audi- well, either that or it's, uh, you know, or it's black, written down. Black, yeah, black ink on white paper. Sure. Mm-hmm. How about you? What I like to do is I just like to get real quiet. I like to put on some music. Slipper, uh, your slippers? Light up. You like to cuddle up? <laughs> I have a Snuggie and a candle. And I have a journal. And uh, generally I read from Jesus Calling, uh, which is a really, really cool devotional. And I read from that, and then I ask the Lord, Lord, what do you, what do you have to say to me? <laughs> Do you realize how many people think that that's how one listens to the Holy Spirit? That they use either the inner dialogue of their own heart and circumstances and even their crazy dreams to lead God and direct them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm guessing what a significant portion of the evangelical world thinks that this is how it goes, huh? Yeah, so let's yeah. see. let's see what he says. Okay. You've got to be led by the Holy Spirit. If you're going to love people, if you're going to point people to Jesus, if we're going to fill the commission that God put us on this earth to do, once again, our purpose, our commission is to go into the world, to share Jesus, right? to baptize people, to make disciples, to teach people. That's our purpose. What a rhetorical mess this is. He has not even talked about this. Uh, you know, and he's saying, once again, this is our purpose. It's a new we, purpose. It's a new one. It's a new one. We have, we, we've heard about, you know, us having this purpose of loving our neighbor and that what will happen as a result of that is that people will be one for Christ. Okay, so which we talked about earlier. But now he has come and he's made this the ultimate point. Should we not win people for Christ? I mean, should we studiously avoid that? No, absolutely not. But everything in your vocation. And wouldn't you even say when he brings up the Great Commission that this really is the driving force for pastors? Right. I mean, who, to whom was the command given? Right. It's the 11. Pastor, that's your job. Your job is to baptize. And to teach. And to teach. Right. It's interesting to me to see how he's slid into this. I didn't see it coming. It is totally confusing. How do you get a handle on this? We've got to be led by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in order to know God, it requires the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that draws us to God. So if you're struggling this morning with knowing God and loving him personally, if you're struggling with knowing people and loving people, it's got to start with the Holy Spirit. You've got to allow that spirit inside of you to draw you, to move you. 
There it is, the old Adam, just poking his ugly head right out of the ground. The spirit inside you to move you and draw you. And see, when I asked you how the Holy Spirit speaks to you, every example you gave. Which is the full bore. That, that's it, right? I'm not going to give other examples. Go ahead. Is outside of you. Right. Isn't that fascinating? And he is pointing everybody there on the inside. Which is horrifying because what's on the inside ain't pretty. The second part that we're able to do is simply this, is to share your story with somebody. Just to share your story. You realize this is a sacrament for the evangelical. Is the testimonial, Mm -hmm. right? right. Yeah. Music has become a sacrament. Testimony has become a sacrament. In that... It becomes a means by which you draw. Yeah. That's it. It becomes the means. See, the Word of God... Even though Scripture is very clear, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Nah, eh, 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 eh. It's your story. That's what will hook them left and right. So, isn't this fascinating uh, when we look at the, the preaching of the, uh, say, of Peter or Paul in Acts? Peter doesn't get up on Pentecost and tell the story of Peter. Paul doesn't get up. In Acts 13 or 14, I can't remember which one, uh, in, the, in, in the synagogue and tell the story of Paul. The only time that we hear the story of Paul, interestingly, from Paul's own mouth, is when he is defending himself in front of the authorities. This isn't his testimonial. It's his courtroom argument for why he's not guilty like they think he is. But again, because the evangelical has heard this time and time and time again, nobody will make these arguments that you're making or that I'm making. They won't say, my testimony does not matter. If you want my testimony, I was lost and then I was found. How's that? That's yours. Yeah. Yeah. I was dead in my sins and my trespasses. How's that? Right. And Christ said, he who believes in me passes from death to life. Boom. That's it. Yep. Or actually, I've, I've, I've been asked to do this before, right? I think it, when I was teaching at St. Olaf, the uh, kids for FCA, is that what it's called? Yep. FCA? Yeah. Asked me, asked me to come and uh, give a testimonial, right? And uh, they want, and I said, what, what, what is this, right? <laughs> and they said, well, the story of your walk, walk with the Lord. Right. Okay. Right. And uh, I said, well, it started off. On the I was, 17th of September, 1967. Right? I was eight days old. Yep. And I was baptized. Yeah. And you should have seen the chins hit the floor. Right. Yeah. Th- there's nothing dramatic in my walk with the Lord. It's a it's a totally mundane sinner saint struggling and contending with the word of God against the powers of the devil and my own flesh. That's all it is. And why would anybody care about your story? Point me to the one who died for me. Precisely. Because somehow or another, your testimony is then on par with the true sword of the Spirit. Somehow or another, it gets equated. I mean, that is super interesting, the claim that you're making here. And obviously, it is is sacramental in value. It's not the proclaimed word. It's the testimonial. And this this was my contention on the podcast with Pastor Oakry. If you don't embrace the sacraments that God actually gives, which they don't, you'll make up new ones. That is a really profound 
observation. I mean, super profound. Those ones that are made up are nothing more than sinful substitutes. And isn't it interesting, I mean, what this suggests about anthropology? What it suggests about anthropology is that we actually need sacraments, right? So we've what we've done is we've emptied the category of anything, of baptism, the sacrament, the altar, absolution, and we just need to fill it with something else. Share your journey. Share your purpose with people. So as the Holy Spirit is leading you, man, don't be afraid to share your purpose in life. Don't be afraid to share really your first love, your first love, as Revelation says, the first love is God. And then out of that, everything else flows out of that. And the third and final conclusion of this is simply this, is that we get, to, we get to share the grace of salvation. That's the big win, that you and I get to share the grace that was given us of salvation. The grace that was given us of salvation. Is there a verb there? I mean, if you diagram that. Share the grace that was given us of salvation. Given to us. The grace of salvation that was given to us is what I think he's saying. But what does he, I, I, what does he mean? How, how is this shared? Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. You've done it. You've, you've nailed it right there. If I were a college prof mm-hmm. and this were an essay or a speech that were given to me, I would have to flunk it as being nonsensical. Well, even like, even even this. Okay, so let's go back. He's got three. Th- Here's your purpose: love God, love others, and uh, win other people. He didn't say it, win other people, but point other people to Jesus. This is what this is your purpose. And if you're not doing this, you need to change it because it's it's a bad Ed, that what you're doing is a bad purpose, and it ain't gonna leave no legacy. So this is what you need to do: to leave a legacy. So we're gonna give you three re or three examples or three something or others as to how to do that. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Share your testimony, and don't be afraid to share your story. And then third, share share the grace that you have with salvation. I mean, I, I thought that was this one. I thought that was the third point. So he's using right. a, a third rationale to explain it. It goes back to that circular exactly. argument that you were mentioning. Previously. There is just no—this guy doesn't have any outlining skills whatsoever. I, I can't believe that. What does a guy like this pull down a year, do you think? He's doing fine. For this nonsense, though. But it's like God gives the people what they want. They want their ears tickled, and so he's giving them somebody to do just that. They want pious platitudes, the appearance of godliness, but not the real McCoy. So listen, as we explore God over these next couple weeks, I hope that this is a good foundation for you that— in order to really understand more of where we're going and more of who God is, how many know it really helps to understand your purpose? Your purpose in life is to know and love God. And the second is equally as important. Your purpose is to love people. Church, let's get those two things right first. Let's pursue those two things first. Then everything else comes after that. And so with that, I want everybody to stand here at the Worship Center in the Great Room in the Chapel. If you're up in Wake Forest, I want everybody to stand with me this morning. I want to close this in prayer, and then we're going to close out. Let's, let's pray together. And as you stand, the worship teams are coming, and we're going to close out this morning's service. And so let's pray together. Father, we thank you. No, you don't get to, you don't get to pray for us. 
So, Pastor Bruss, has this been a good foundation for for you? For exploring God? It's been all about me. I, I have no idea how this is exploring God. You don't think that it's it's helped you personally with with your purpose? Uh, no, I'm I'm dumbfounded. I just don't even know what this whole sermon was about. At the I, I really don't know what this was about. So what would you say to a person who goes to a church like this and has to listen to this schlock? Wouldn't you say, go try to find a church where the preacher makes some sense? Uh, you can't even discern truth from falsehood in this sermon because it makes no sense. That's a powerful statement. <laughs> right? I mean, like, what was your sentence before? Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. Can I discern truth and falsehood in that statement? No. Uh, I mean, how, how is this supposed to have laid a foundation for exploring God? Do you want to know God? Right? Okay, exploring God. Do you want to know God? Do you yeah. want to know who he is? Yeah, sure. You want, okay. So let me tell you what he's done. Right. And just boom, basically sermons on the creed or something like that. Right. right. But what this guy's done is thrown it all on me. You want to know God? This is what you do. It's all back on me. You love God. You love your neighbor. Who I don't even know who this God is, but you're calling me to love him, be in love with him. Be in love with him. Even, and then turn is... around and love, as he said, everybody. And listen to the Holy Spirit actually inside you. Yeah, just from the perspective of rhetoric, it's a mess. From the perspective of theology, it's a train wreck. And so, final thought, what does this do for one's Christian life? Nothing. What does it do? Nothing. There was nothing here. Unless, as you point out, this awful confusion of law and gospel, turning the love commands into... I can't say anything because he said nothing. Gotcha. Can you say anything? All I can say is, if you're listening to this and you're involved in something like this, please go find an evangelical Lutheran church somewhere this coming Sunday. To a Missouri Synod Church or a Wisconsin Synod Church. See if you can begin to understand the difference between law and gospel. And if that pastor is, is anything, he's probably got a midweek class sometime. Might not work with your schedule, but you move your schedule and you go to his class and you start learning the difference between the law and the gospel and then listening for it in the sermons that you hear. Amen. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org. Specifically, no, he's just going to use these uh, these uh, sort of vague terms, love, the vague term of love, right? I mean, and it, it's not vague in the scriptures at all, but it is vague in the American imagination. And you're saying vague, right? Vague. Vague. What, what, <laughs> what, what am I saying? Vague. Va what, vague. 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 <laughs> this is accent difference, folks. <laughs> uh, yeah, vague. That's what I'm saying. V-A-G-U-E. Vague. Vague. <laughs>